Today we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and so if you'd turn there, we're in a sermon series that uh, we've been in for a while, uh, 11 chapters worth, or 10 chapters worth, starting with uh, chapter 11 today, and um, this whole sermon series I've titled Untangled, because Paul is helping the church in Corinth untangle some of their bad thinking or their theology, and I want to really commend Pastor Nick last week, he did a fantastic job of helping us understand what motivates us in our Christian conduct. And so uh, thank you, Nick, for your good work there. Before we start reading the passage today or getting into anything today, I need to tell you we are entering dangerous territory. Some of you have read ahead. You know chapter 11. You know some of the topics that are there. And I will tell you, I think that this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament to understand. It's difficult on several fronts. Uh, let me explain a couple of those to you. It, it, it's, it's difficult because Paul is using some words and concepts that are a little foreign, a little different, and we're not completely able to understand completely what he means there. Um, we're not able to completely understand what was happening in the social context of the church in Corinth. We have no pictures from that time. We have no accounts, really, of what, what worship looked like, so we're a little bit at a loss to know how the things he talks about were practiced. And many of the things he's talking about this week are layered on top of each other. This builds on that, and uh, you know we'll understand some of that, but I'm, I'm here to tell you I'm not sure I completely understand everything that he's talking about there. So I enter in this passage today with a bit of timidity. Um, I'm going to explain the passage as best I'm able today, but I'm quite aware that others may, may interpret this passage differently or apply it differently, and so I'm well aware of that. Here's where everybody is in step. Everybody's in step that chapter 11 starts a very decided new topic for Paul. He's covered three big topics so far. This is the fourth, and it deals with Christian practices in worship. When you hold a worship service, these are some things I want you to think about. This week, he deals with head coverings. Next week, communion. And then in weeks following, it's going to be the use of spiritual gifts in Christian worship and in the church. So those are everybody agrees with that, and that's where we're headed but we, again, are a little bit tentative or we hold very loosely uh, what he's talking about today because, well, there's just some difficult things to understand. Your Bibles are open. I'm starting in verse 2, chapter 11, and this is the way that Paul writes it. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So he gives the very positive news first. Hey, I want to commend you, Corinthians. You're doing a good job of, of keeping to the things that I delivered to you. However, but, starts verse 3, I want, to, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her heads, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Oh, boy. 
Where are we going now? (laughs) Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anybody is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Uh, Has the temperature risen in the room by about 10 degrees just as I uh, started that? I know it did for me, and uh, we're going to make our way through this, but I want to start in a very interesting spot. And I want to start, start in a spot with some cultural practices. Years ago, I took my very first trip to Israel, and I'm showing you a picture now of a spot called the Western Wall, or also called the Wailing Wall. And if you're a Jew today, this is the most sacred spot in Judaism because it borders, right above it, is the old temple that was Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple. And this is the last remaining spot, really, that wasn't destroyed that Jews go to today and they pray. Uh, raise your hand if you've been to this spot. I'm just kind of curious how many. A number of you have, and that's good. Um, this is a very uh, iconic spot, and you go up to that spot, and you, everybody kind of wants to go up and pray. I know I did. And there is a station there that if you're a man, they will give you a covering for your head, a little yarmulke, uh, kind of a reusable one or uh, one, a disposable one, I guess I should say. And so you go to the station, and if you don't have a head covering, then they will provide one for you. If you have a hat, that is sufficient. So here's another picture, and it's of me praying at the western wall. There I am in the red, and you'll notice I have a pretty big hat on, and so that was sufficient for the day. But no man can go to the wall and pray unless they have their heads covered. There's another spot in Israel. It's a church, and many people went to that spot. And in that spot... If you do not have your woman, if you're a woman, you don't have your shoulders uh, and arms covered, then they will provide you a shawl for that. Also, if you're not providing uh, sufficient covering all the way down to the ankles, they're happy to let you in the church, but they're going to provide you with a shawl to be able to do that. Third example I want to give you is women in Mexico today. Many churches that I've been in throughout Latin America women will cover their heads with a veil. And that's very, very common practice. And we've been on mission trips before, and we have been in churches that practice that, and we've instructed the women who are with us, please you know, cover with a veil or a shawl in that way, and because we want to be culturally sensitive to the Christians that are here. I bring all of those up because it deals with covering or propriety in some way. What's honorable? What's dishonorable? And that's what this passage is all about today. Now, it's quite easy to understand what Paul says, contrary maybe to some of the other examples I just gave you. This is the instruction that Paul gives to the church. He says, when men come to a worship service and they pray or prophesy, they should do so without their heads covered. So it was kind of exactly the opposite when you went to the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem. That was men had their heads covered. In this instance, Paul's very clear, men, no head coverings. However, when women come to a surface 
and they pray or prophesy, they should have their heads covered. And so, I guess we could just hand out the uh, little scarves and call this a service. And we would have the women cover heads and that would be the end of it. Well, maybe not so fast. Maybe that's not necessarily what is the upshot of this whole passage. I'm going to argue today that this passage is really about the distinctions between men and women, especially as it comes to worship. It is about the beautiful God-designed differences between men and women, and those distinctions cannot be blurred or they cannot be diminished. That's what I think this passage is all about. And so I want to talk to you today about why the distinctions between men and women are so important, especially as it relates to worship. I'm going to look at this with you from three angles, and I want to give you three reasons why the distinctions between men and women are so important, and we'll try to make some sense of this kind of wacky passage that we just read that has a lot of terms in it, again, that Paul doesn't use anywhere else. For instance, head coverings, he doesn't talk about anywhere else. It's just right here. And so again, this is one of the few passages that we have that, those words and those concepts in. And so we'll take a look at this from three angles. First, the reason why the distinctions between men and women are so important is because it is foundational. I'm in verse 3, and this is what Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to notice there that he uses the word head of wife is husband, and other translations would say the head of a woman is man. So it's a little unclear here of whether or not that word gune, which is the word that can either mean wife or woman, whether Paul's talking about a husband and a wife or is he talking about a man and a woman. And that's just the beginning of some of the, uh, the difficulties with this passage. This passage is, starts off with this foundational statement and everything flows from this, and I would argue that this is a foundational statement that Paul states that is true all the time in every culture, everywhere, and he gives three couplets. There are three couplets or, or duos that he uses in order to explain this idea of headship, and these are the three couplets. He says, Christ is, or excuse me, God the Father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Or, again, if the translation is potentially, the husband is the head of uh, a wife. Now, again, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled over this idea of what head is and what it means. And uh, this Greek word, I don't often throw the Greek words out there, but I want to in this instance. The Greek word is kephale. Kephale means head in Greek. Say that with me, kephale. One, two, three, kephale. And that word, again, has had a whole lot written about it. The most plain understanding of that word is the human head. I mean, ta-da! I mean, you know, that, that makes sense, right? I mean, so head is this idea of the human head. The human head is the cognitive place in the body that, that functions for us. It has five of the senses that are in this little dome up here. And, you know, so we've got sight, we've got smell, we've got taste, we've got hearing, and we've got touch that's all throughout all the body is processed into the central system right here in the head. So that's the most common uh, idea of what this head means. Now again, he probably doesn't mean that 
that, that, that God the Father is the head of Christ or that Christ is the head of man in this physical sense. He means it more metaphorically, but to stay with that, he probably means this metaphorical sense of authority or direction. So just as the head gives direction to the body, he is saying Jesus is in submission to God the Father in that way. There is a level of authority given to God the, by God the Father to Jesus. And likewise, the same is true with uh, Christ and man and, and man and woman or husband and wife. And so again, he's talking about this idea of direction or authority or willing submission that one gives to another. Now again, I want you to notice that Jesus has no problem with this. Jesus is, is perfect in saying, I am in submission to the Father. And I offer you John 12, 49 as an example. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And so Jesus is like, I'm no problem here that I am in willing submission to the Father. I listen to everything that the Father says, and that's exactly what I've done in my ministry. Nothing more and nothing less. And so we have this relationship in the Trinity and between Father and Son especially that is revealing what is being talked about here. Now again, I would again argue that uh, Jesus is talking here about his relationship to the Father, and he's also talking about the relationship of Christ and, and man, as well as man and woman. But there's others that would see this very differently, and I have to give you a, a fair shake here. There's others that don't believe that kephale, head, has anything to do with authority or direction. Rather, they would argue that that word means source. And certainly in some instances in Greek, it does mean that. And by source, I mean like the source of a river. So the spot where a river originates would be the sense of the word as source. Now again, I, you know, again I'm not going to break fellowship with anybody who maybe views it from that sense. Uh, I think they're wrong because I don't think that this fits the context the best way for Paul. But nevertheless, I want to make sure that you understand, again, there's some people that might view that, that differently. The teaching is not in vogue today, that the issue of submission or the issue of authority. It garners all kinds of grinding of teeth. And usually anybody who uses that kind of language, well, they get the kind of a phrase, oh, you're one of the chauvinists kind of phrase. I mean, that's kind of what is the initial reaction at any time we start talking again about anything that deals with authority. But again, I want you to notice, Jesus is in authority to the Father the Spirit is in authority to Jesus. In fact, the Spirit's whole purpose is to come and reveal Jesus to the world. And so, again, there's a perfect idea of what's happening in the Trinity by what we mean here. I'd like to tell you a story from Andy Stanley related to this. Uh, Andy Stanley, a famous pastor. And uh, years ago, he was invited to, as a younger man, he was invited to a wedding in which uh, he was a groomsman. And he said, as soon as the wedding was over, the, the whole wedding party decided minus the bride and groom, of course, but the whole wedding party decided they were going to go to a restaurant together and spend some more time. He said it was in D.C., and they went to a posh spot in Georgetown. They were at the restaurant, and a girl turned to him, knowing that he was a pastor, and she said, Andy, I heard a preacher say that a man had to be the head of the, of the home because a two-headed home was like a two-headed monster. Is that what you believe, that man is the head? Andy said, I took a deep breath, and then I decided how to respond, and he said, before I answer your question, imagine you're married to a man who genuinely believes you are the most fantastic person on the planet. He's crazy about you. You have no doubt that your happiness is his top priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. To use an old-fashioned term, 
He cherishes you. He's not afraid to make a decision, but he values your opinions. He leads, but he listens. He's responsible. He's not argumentative. But you have no doubt that he would give his life if the need arose. You never need to worry about him being unfaithful. He says, as I continue to talk, I could tell the whole table was growing quiet and the whole attention of the conversation was moving to my end of the table. But he says, I also noticed that some resistance was ebbing. When I finished and I paused, I asked the girl who asked the question, do you think you would be willing to follow a man like that? And without missing a beat, she said, Cuss word, yes. I would love to follow a man like that. Like, where is he? Everybody, he said at the table, laughed. And he said, without saying much, my point had been made. Who would not be willing to follow that kind of person who has your general interest in mind, where there's no fear, where there's really no reason to resist? If we have this kind of idea in our minds when we talk about authority, it blunts the commonly held notion that authority deals with exerting control over somebody, especially against their will. That's not the New Testament idea of authority or submission. There was none of that within the relationship of the Father and Jesus. And there should be none of that also in the relationship also between man and woman or husband and wife. Well, let's keep going on here because Paul has a lot more to say. The second reason why distinctions between men and women are so important is because they are in creation, or I might say they're baked into creation. And Paul picks up in verse 7 and says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so he's taking us Back to the creation story, Genesis chapter 2. Remember that story. God creates Adam. He lets Adam name all the animals. And as he looks over the animals, there's no suitable match for him. He's noticing a trend. Hey, there's two of these animals that are together and they match each other. I don't have one of those. And so God then puts Adam to sleep and out of his rib, he creates woman. She is meant to be his complement, his perfect match. She fills in all of the gaps for him, all of the things that are lacking in him, she fulfills within him. And again, that's the influence of the first marriage is that, the, that man is the glory of God and woman is this glory of man. And although both are made in the image of God, both share equal value before God, one was created first, Paul argues. Man was created first before woman. And so his argument is that this was all established at creation by God. And Paul is saying that a woman would demonstrate her submission by willingly putting this covering over her head and saying, I'm in submission to my husband or I'm in submission to man. And again, debate about whether or not Paul means one or the other because the term is a little bit ambiguous here. This is complicated by that phrase that I did note and chuckled a little bit about where Paul says uh, that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. And it's like, where did that come from? That's like out of left field. I, I don't know how angels entered into this argument at all. And after I, you know, again, studied this this week, looked over all the different translations or the different commentaries that perhaps people are saying something about this, this is where I've landed. I think Paul means that the angels even understand the creative order. They understand the distinctions between men and women. 
And so they're even the, the, they're, and they're looking over the worship service, as it were, and seeing what's going on. And even the angels are ones that recognize that there is a distinction between men and women. And they recognize that, again, women are to conduct themselves in such a way. Now, Paul's argument seems to stem again from this creative order. Who is willing to submit to who? And just as Jesus is willing to submit to the Father, we're all willing to submit to Jesus and women to their uh, wives to their husbands. There's a commonly held notion today that uh, basically the sexes are the same. Genders are the same. And they're completely interchangeable. And again, even science is beginning to demonstrate how shallow this notion is. I want to bring into the story today a man named, a psychologist named David Schmidt, and he's done one of the most complete, exhaustive studies, cross-culturally even, of gender and of personality, and he wrote in Psychology Today, this is all the way back in 2017, but not that long ago, and his whole study is showing that the sexes or the genders are not just interchangeable, there's some very large differences between them. He says, there are psychological differences between men and women, and they affect matters as trivial as sensitivity to smelly socks and as, as significant as susceptibility to disorders such as depression and autism. Meta-analysis of research has found women to be more empathetic, while men are more prone to sexual jealousy. Men tend to be better able to rotate an object in three-dimensional space in their minds, say upside down, being able to, for instance, upside up, notice an upside down character, whereas women excel at locating an object in a visual field and remembering exactly where it is. So a woman would be able to take a look at a map and say, oh, that's where Big Ben is on the map in London. Men and women are different from puberty, size, strength, risk-taking, mortality, and of course, reproduction. Schmidt laments that just as the evidence is mounting, denial of differences has become rampant. Attempts at respectful and productive conversations about biological sex differences often end with name-calling or outright cancellation of events. Not to mention the very public firing of a Google engineer for writing a memo about this very topic. Men and women are both made in the image of God, but they're made to be complementary, but different. And in this way, man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, Paul says. And this is true, he says, across all generations and across all cultures. All right, here's the third one I want you to see. Third, distinctions between men and women are so important because they are in nature. Paul says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul now turns to nature and what we observe in nature. And he says there's something that predominantly happens in nature. In fact, you could look across the room today and see this commonly thing happening right now. Commonly, most men have bald heads or they are thinning and they have short hair and predominantly women have longer hair. Now again, I hear the rebuttal coming right now. Come on, pastor, not always. And I have a perfect example for you of where this mold is broken. It was a hunky guy from years ago. His name was Fabio. You remember Fabio? 
And, you know, that guy looks okay with long hair, right? And, you know, I could have put up here also some pictures of some women with very short hair. I even have some pictures I could put up there of women who had shaved their head. I'm thinking of Sinead O'Connor. I mean, that, so again, there's, uh, there's all kinds of examples for this. But don't miss the point. The point predominantly is that Paul says men, again, have shorter hair or they're going bald. And women have longer hair, and this is true over all cultures of all times. And so Paul is saying, hey, the woman's hair is her glory. It's what sets her apart. And Paul uses this as the final example for saying, hey, I want to talk to you again about why this practice is true of, uh, of, uh, of authority and of head coverings, and even nature itself is teaching that. All right. Let's see if we can make some sense of all this and make some level of application to it. Paul says there are distinctions between men and women, and the reason that there are distinctions is because it's by design by God. It is true all the way back to creation when God created man and woman, and it's supported by the way we even view nature today. And let's go back into the topic again, again, of, of, of head coverings themselves. When we say head coverings, it really is very vague in what Paul means. Does Paul mean that there is a scarf, like we saw some of those women wearing? Does he mean that there is a veil? There is even a group of scholars that make a very convincing case that it's a specific kind of hairdo. What is it that Paul means when he says head coverings? We are a bit at a loss to know exactly what Paul means in the Corinthian church at this time, and that's lost on us. And so it's a, a bit difficult for us to know exactly how to apply that piece. There are a couple of other timeless principles I think this passage teaches, which are the more important things that we really pay attention to, and I'd like to give you a few of those right now. The first one is, let's honor the creation mandate and celebrate the gender differences between men and between women. We are a beautiful pair, and together we make the whole. It's not right when we say that there are no differences between genders, because again, there are. And, and even worse, today, there would be some that would say, you know, gender is what you make of it. I mean, so it's, it's like free form. It's like putty or Play-Doh, and you just have the ability to create it to be whatever you want. No, God created them man and woman, and it's part of revealing the glory of God. God made men and women to be equal in personhood, equal in value before him, and yet with different roles or with different functions. And we operate well as a church when we remember that and we practice that. Second thing, let's respect culturally specific distinctions in guarding moral and sexual purity. So again, I'm going to go out here again today and say... Uh, we have to be careful with the way that we use our gender or use our uh, sexuality. And purity has to be one of the, uh, pu the, the highest callings for us. Modesty is always in uh, vogue in the church. And again, Paul is saying this because, again, he's saying there's some things happening in Corinth that were not right. One of the things that was happening was that some women perhaps were going bald and if they were going or shaving their heads, if they were doing that, there's a body of evidence that the temples in Corinth at that time had women shave their heads when they were prostitutes that were advertising. 
And so he's saying, we don't want to mix that up. We don't want to be a part of that. We don't want somebody to misunderstand about who we are and what we really stand for. So we're careful in the way that we go about our dress and the way we go about revealing ourselves, our bodies. Uh, you know, parents, uh, hey, pay attention to your kids. The culture's not going to help you on this. And so modesty is something that will always be something that we are promoting. In this vein, I also want to say that there is a movement today. It's kind of the gender movement that's in schools and everywhere else. And the goal is to so muddy the waters on gender that it can almost mean anything you want. That's dangerous for us. That's not something that's good for us. There are real distinctions between genders for a reason, for a purpose. And we are... We, we as Christians are going to hold up those distinctions and try to respect those. Three, and this is one I really want you to hear. Let's integrate women and their gifts in the life of the church and the life of worship. I think we do a good job of that at CCF, but I want to continue with that. And here's what I mean by that. We missed something, or I, I missed something. I didn't cover it with you yet. But one of the things Paul says is that women may pray and prophesy in church. Now, up to this time, if you were a Jew and you went to the temple, there were men and women that would have been separated. And in many functions in society at that time, men had one space, women had another space. You women sitting here with men today is a reflection of this passage and a reflection of the revolution that occurred at that time. That men and women would go and sit side by side in a worship service and have equal opportunity to worship and pray, prophesy, he says to God. And so again, he, he's, he's opening the door here and saying, man, look at all the freedom that the Spirit is giving to us, and let's make sure and take advantage of that. Women have every spiritual gift that's given to uh, people from God, and we, uh, we acknowledge that. We want to celebrate that. We want to let women use those gifts within the body of Christ. And that's a good thing for the church. Let me reiterate today, this passage is about why gender differences are so important. In the past, they would have been expressed by head coverings. Today, I think the way that we express those is by honoring the distinctions, the usefulness of men and women in church and in worship life, but understanding the differences between those and exercising those properly. Properly. Men and women are not interchangeable. Both are needed to fully embrace the nature of God himself. So let's honor God with the complementary differences between men and women. Because hear this, together we make quite a team. Father, I pray that I've done honor to you this passage today. It's a tough one. And I'm just willing to tell you that, Father. Here, here's what I want you to hear, Lord, from all of us. We all love you, and we want to honor you in our worship lives together. And we use this passage today to remind ourselves that you've made women and men in your image. They're not interchangeable, they're, but they're both useful, and they're both needed. And together, we somehow declare the glory of God. Lord, help us to be able to practice this in real and, and meaningful ways and help us be a church that is always standing upon your word, always believing it, always living it, always honoring you by eating your word and uh, being nourished by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.